I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11. Now, which, which of you have Bibles that have verse 26? Does anyone not have a verse 26 in your Bible? Okay. Yeah, we have another textual variant. Remember how much fun we had in the, the last sermon of chapter, uh, chapter 9 it was? I, I got about six white hairs the week I was prepping for that sermon. Um, we'll, we'll cover that when we get to it. Um, by way of introduction, I just want to start going through, start, start at verse 20. You see, in verse 20, we see the beginning of the next day at Passion, uh, of, of the Passion Week. We've seen Jesus and his disciples, they've left their lodging in Bethany, and they are now returning to Jerusalem. There's more work to be done, there's more healing to be done, more teaching to be done, all that one, so that Jesus can demonstrate his power and compassion to those in Jerusalem, just as he did to those in Galilee for three years. He wants to show his power and compassion to those in Jerusalem as the Passover draws near. That's one thing he wants to accomplish. He also wants to uh, accomplish the, the provocation of his frightened enemies so that they will carry that they will plan and carry out their plan to have him uh, arrested and tried and convicted and ultimately executed by the Romans. That's the second thing he wants to accomplish is provoke them at just the right pace so that he will be crucified on the Passover. The third thing that he wants to accomplish is he still has some vital shaping of of the 12. He's in his final hours with these men. His time is almost up. There's just a few sands left in the hourglass, and he has some teaching to do. And the teaching will start in uh, verse 20, 22. But I want to use these, uh, these two verses to get up there. So what do they see on the way to Jerusalem in the morning? What do they see in verse 20? They see the fig tree. They see that barren, fruitless, nothing but leaves. Fig tree, only it's a little different today. What's different about the fig tree? It is withered from the roots up. It is now dead. It's not a sickly tree. It is not a dying tree where, where the, the, root, the, the trunk is still alive, but the branches are dying. It has died from the inside out. And this is not a mostly dead tree. It is, this is a fully dead tree. Now, Matthew, uh, I think I said last time that uh, Matthew uh, said that it withered all at once right in front of them. What, what he's doing is, is he's telescoping the scene. He sees the, he sees the cursing and the effects of the curse as one scene. So he telescopes it and, uh, and, and puts it in one event. Um, and he remember Jesus said that he, uh, after cursing, he said, no one from, would eat from it again. And now we see a, uh, the, the fruit of his cursing. The tree is now cursed, withered, shriveled, and absolutely bereft of life. Now, these men have seen a thing or two in their, in their time with Jesus, right? They've seen a thing or two, but this is new. This cursing of the tree 
is new. This is, this is the only destructive miracle of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. This is new, and this has put questions in Peter's mind. And if there's something we've learned about Peter, is that when something is on Peter's mind, Peter's mouth opens. Now, he's not the only one asking questions, because if you look at verse 22, when Jesus answers, he doesn't say to Peter, he says to them. So, so th- this is all, in all likelihood, this is, this is a question that is on all of their minds. But Peter is the spokesman, and he says, as an exclamation, which it, it really is a question, there's a question embedded in it, he, he says, Rabbi, look, uh, the fig tree which you cursed has withered, and you, you, ha- you have to imagine him saying, uh, ending that with a, with a, with a face like this: "Rabbi, the fig tree which you cursed has has withered." As if, how, what, what did this? How did this happen? Matthew actually includes that question, but it, how, how did this happen? Well, the answer, the short answer, is it's the power of God. Duh. It's the power of God. Now, Romans 8.28 says that God works not most things, but all things together for good for those who are called, right? I believe God right now is using this, this captivation of Peter. He is utterly captivated. He is fascinated by this tree. And we see that he, if you look, if you look at um, verse 21, he was reminded or being reminded. I believe God has caused him, caused this to sprout up in his mind and has caused him, Peter to be fascinated by this so that he would ask Jesus about it so that Jesus can in turn respond by teaching these men about prayer. Because the truth is, beloved, these men are going to need to depend upon prayer in the hard days to come. They need to learn about prayer. Because if you really think, if you look at what we have read about them, about the twelve and about their being with Jesus for the last three years, what what, what have we learned about their dependence upon him? Have they really ever needed anything? Have they ever needed anything? Have they ever been, uh, have they ever been, for want have they ever been for lack no jesus i mean think about it. they have god standing in their midst absolutely wherever they go absolutely anything they need they can just tap god on the shoulder and ask him and this this the, his immediate presence has 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 restrained the urgency that prayer has played in their lives. And you can remember that just a few chapters ago when Jesus was up on the mountain and they're trying to heal the the boy, the demon-possessed boy, they didn't pray because they didn't have faith. His immediate presence has restrained the urgency of their prayer lives. And in just a few days, and in less than two days, in fact, he will no longer be with them. Things for these men were going to cha- take a drastic change. They were, the truth is, they're going to become like future, be- like 
believers of future generations, they're going to be become totally dependent on prayer to access the power and the provision of God for their needs. That is what the church, that is how the church has operated for the last 2,000 years. These men have had God in their midst, supplying their every need. They have not needed to pray, but they will need to start praying in the immediate future. So Jesus responds to Peter's question by teaching them on how to access powerful prayer. This text is a lesson on how to access powerful prayer. And there's four points that he gives us. In verse 22, Jesus will teach these men that, they, that powerful prayer requires believing in God. Powerful prayer believes in God. Verse 23, he'll teach them that powerful prayer does not doubt God. It believes in God. It does not doubt God. In verse 24, we will see that powerful prayer asks of God. It's not just passive. It will ask of God. And then fourth, in verse 25, and then and then uh, not for you guys because you don't have verse 26, uh, but for everyone else, in verses 25 and 26, we will see that powerful prayer forgives others. Let's read the text. I'll start again at verse 20. When, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. When you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father is in heaven, will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transition, transgressions. He may, he may forgive your transitions, but definitely your transgressions. All right, so first, first things first. Jesus says, have faith in God. Powerful prayer believes in God. Jesus says, have faith in God. This is the key thing to have. There's a Latin phrase called sine qua non. It, it is referring to something that is absolutely so crucially essential that if you don't have that thing, you better not even bother. Faith is the sine qua non. This is absolutely fundamental, not just to prayer, but to the whole Christian life. Anybody surprised by that? Anybody surprised by Jesus's words here? Anybody may be slightly offended that we have to be told and reminded that we need to have faith in God? I mean, isn't this junior level, junior high Christianity stuff? The, the truth is, this is something that new and old, that amateur and experienced Christians need to be reminded of. Let me remind you that Jesus grew up and lived and walked around in a very religious, in a very faith based 
environment. They grew up, he grew up, the disciples grew up in synagogue hearing passages like Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. They grew up hearing passages like Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord. Have faith in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And that proverb continues, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your body and a refreshment to your bones. They grew up hearing passages read regularly in synagogue, telling the people, exhorting the people, commanding the people, teaching the people, instructing the people, you must have faith in God, you must trust God, you must lean on God, you must follow God. You must have faith in God. But by and large, did Jesus find faith in the Jewish people? John 1 says, and he came to his own and his own received him not. Now this this little band of misfits that we have here, this band of disciples They've made some progress, right? They've made some progress, but it's been a slow, agonizing process. It's not surprising, even within this believing community, that belief and faith is so abundantly scarce. Faith has been so scarce. And so here he is, knowing his time is almost up. He is fanning their faith into a greater flame Encouraging them that by their faith, by your faith, God will do great things. But the means by which he will do it is you having faith. You must have faith. Now, there's, uh, This is the verse that, that the whole rest of the passage hinges on. So we're going to tear this verse apart. I want you to consider first the verb itself. Have faith. Uh, It could also say believe. As I said earlier, this is the most basic element required for powerful prayer because faith is how we come to Christ. Faith is how we are joined to Christ. You hear the word of God, the spirit regenerates you, and he gives you, he makes you, he causes you to have faith and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you now come to him, you follow him, you trust him, you follow him, you obey him all by faith. Faith isn't just merely assenting with your intellect that God is out there somewhere. Faith is, a, it is an active, it is an abiding, it is a living, it is a vibrant trust in God's character and in his person. This is a confidence in the God who has most certainly revealed himself in history and who's intervened in our behalfs. Faith is a trust in the God who has come down to the level of men. Having faith in God, trusting God is requires believing whom he has sent. It's believing God at his word. It is believing that he that Christ has died for your sins because that is what God has said he he did. It is believing that Christ has given you life. It is believing that Christ must be followed. 
It is believing that Christ is worthy to be entrusted with everything that you and I have, everything that you and I are. Faith is trusting that he is our everything and giving everything that we are over to him, even our very souls. You must have faith. Faith is believing that you belong to him. Faith is believing that because you belong to him, he will take care of you. Faith is believing that no matter what he does, it will be good and right and true and that he will do everything he has said he will do. Have faith. You want to have the power of God be brought to bear in your life? Well, this is essential. You must have faith. That's the verb itself, but let's look at the tense. It's a present tense verb, which means literally go on having faith. You could say be believing. That's not really good English, but be believing in God, meaning you're to have faith now and you need to keep having faith. You need to go on and henceforth have faith and keep having faith. 24-7, 365, have faith in God. And if you stop, which you shouldn't stop, but if you do stop, start it up again. Have faith, keep having faith, be believing in God. That's the tense. But now look at the, let's look at the object of the verb. What is the faith in? Is it in you? Is it in your works? Is it in your religion? Is it in the fact that you attend church regularly? And you're very, you, you, have, a, you have a lot of uh, luscious looking green leaves on your tree. What, if, what about the fact that you give, you give to the church regularly and you, you did all those sword drills in Bible camp? Jack's not here. I can talk about Bible camp. What about, what about, okay, so the object of the verb is God himself and it's not God plus anything. It's God, period, paragraph. It's not God plus works, God plus yourself, God plus tradition or God plus luck. Powerful prayer does not come about because of, any, because of any religious thing you do like church attendance or the money we give or the great religiosity with which we do our religion. And it's certainly not God in you. I, I remember uh, uh, sometimes memes are great and sometimes memes make me, make me want to get the mouthwash. I, I saw this one meme by a coworker where she posted and said, you need to have the courage to believe in yourself please. We are not to have faith in ourselves or in our words. Jesus touched on this in Matthew 6, 7 when he said, when you're praying, don't use the meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And this points to the fact that the, that the pagan worshipers believed that their gods needed to be sufficiently prompted. They needed to be goaded into responding to their prayers. These were entities or deities that really didn't want to come down to our level. They don't really want to mingle in the affairs of men. And so they had to be badgered and intimidated and cajoled into doing something. And you can see this with the 450 priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18. You can see this in Ephesians, uh, uh, in, in Acts 19, where for, I think it's two hours they're just droning on and on and on. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Many, many words. 
They think for their, by the sheer weight and volume of their many words, their God would hear them. They've placed faith in their words. No, you have faith in God and God alone, in his character and in his person. So that's the object of the verb. Let's think about the mood of the verb. And you may ask, mood? Is this a a verb in a good mood or a bad mood? No, the mood is an imperative. Now, Eric, you remember what the imperative mood is, right? There's the indicative, which is indicating something. There's the interrogative, which is asking a question. This is the imperative. What's the imperative? I'm the imperative? Imperative is, is, I'm telling you to do something. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not advice. This is not something that you and I get to decide whether or not we want to do it, whether we feel like doing it. You know, this, this, this uh, have faith in God thing, it doesn't really go with my lifestyle. It doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. No, this is a command. Have faith in God. You've you got you to gotta picture Jesus pointing with his finger. Have faith in God. There's authority behind what Jesus is telling they, these men that they must be doing. Have faith in God. And that is what he's been trying to bring out in these men for three years, isn't it? I mean, the, for three years of following and, and all the teaching and all the miracles and, and hearing the words of God in the flesh, he has been trying to bring out, he has been he is sowing and fertilizing and trying to reap faith in these men. And has he seen it? Yes or no? Has he seen it? No, he hasn't. He has reprimanded them. We've seen this. He has reprimanded them. Why are you so afraid? Remember in the boat, in the storm? Why are you so afraid? Why is it you have no faith? And the sad reality is, is, is just like with the Jews, these, these, his disciples among all people, his disciples are those who we should expect them to have faith. They had front row seats to his miracles. They had front row seats to all his teaching and his instruction. They even had the parables explained to them. Of all the people that you would expect faith from, it would be these, it would be these 12 men. And we haven't seen that much. We've actually seen faith from unexpected quarters. We've seen the real faith. It's not perfect faith. It's not to the wall. It's not, it's not to the max faith. It's not perfect faith, but it is real faith. We have seen this in the woman with the hemorrhage, who knew Jesus could heal her. Remember what he said, your faith has made you well. That was in chapter 5. And the Syrophoenician woman in Tyre, remember she persisted in asking Jesus to heal her daughter because she believed that Jesus could and would do it. Remember Bartimaeus, that was just last last chapter. He believed that uh, Jesus could heal him. So what did he do? Did he just passively wait or, or did he succumb to the pressure of the crowd when they told him to be quiet? What did he cry out? Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he persisted because he had faith. And he, Jesus even commended him. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And even the father of the demon-possessed boy, he didn't have perfect faith, but he had faith. Remember, remember Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes. What did he say? I believe, 
help my, un- help my unbelief, but I believe. It's not perfect faith, but he had faith. You don't have to have perfect faith. You don't have to have this spotless, indomitable, unmoving, unwavering faith to move mountains. What does Jesus say you need to have in order to move mountains? Faith, the size of a mustard seed. Good. Have faith in God. Secondly, powerful prayer doesn't doubt God. Verse 23. And notice what he front loads. Notice what he front loads at the beginning. Truly, I say to you. There's a strategic importance of this word. This word truly, it has, it has the same effect as listen up, guys, listen. And we, you almost instinctively, like you almost hold your breath because you, you don't want to make any noise because you don't want to miss what's about to be heard. And that's good because this is a lesson we all need to take to heart. We are all susceptible to doubt, are we not? Isn't that the world we live in? Aren't we all susceptible to doubt? Even John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who ever lived, was susceptible to doubt. And that's because we live in uh, we live amidst painful and frustrating circumstances. That we have tension in our marriage. We have tension with our children. We have tension at work. We have the highest finances in the state in this county. There's the politics of the entire Northwest. There's the fact that the nation and the entire world seems to be going to heck in a handbasket. It certainly doesn't seem to be the world that I grew up in. And on top of all that, we have our own sin to deal with that we're reminded with on a daily basis. We have our failing health. We have cancer. We have miscarriages. We have the loss of loved ones. We have tragedies that blindside us on an idle Tuesday. All these terrible, horrible things and painful things that we can personally relate to and that we can, we can see with our eyes at times can make us doubt the good providence and the goodwill and the sovereign control of the God that we can't see. Right? I mean, am I, am I speaking to the wall? Do you get what I'm saying? We're tempted by the things that we do see to not trust and follow the God that we can't see, but yet we nevertheless follow and love and obey by faith. Jesus knew this. He took up flesh and blood. He walked amidst people who had flesh and blood. Hebrews 4.15 says he is familiar. He is fully acquainted with all our weaknesses. He knows we are prone to doubt. He knows that we can be like these men. He knows that we can be overwhelmed by the things that we can see and lose sight of the promises of God that we can't see. So he says, do not doubt God. Have faith in God. Trust God. Do not doubt God. And, and look, how he, look how he phrases it. Truly, I say to you, whoever. I like that word. I like that word because that tells me he's not just talking to the twelve. I'm in there, and you are in there somewhere. Whoever, whosoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea. Now, stop right there. We know he's talking figuratively, right? He's not telling them to, to, to literally pray for, for uh, 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 tectonic landscaping prayers, right? He, 
this is figurative, A, because we don't see anybody in Scripture praying like this. You don't see anybody in the Old Testament, you don't see anybody in the New Testament praying for mountains to be thrown into the ocean. You don't see anybody in church history praying like this. But secondly, the uh, rabbinic literature in the Talmud tells us that this was a, it, it confirms this is a figure of speech used by the Jews. The Jews would call rabbis who were exceptionally skilled. Remember Solomon, uh, uh, the people would come to them with their problems and he would just solve these problems left and right, no problem. People, the Jews would call rabbis who could solve, who had such a skill at solving problems like that as removers of mountains, as uprooters of mountains. Because their problems, these unsolvable, uh, indomitable problems that where there's just no human solution to, to resolve them, they were like mountains that you can't climb. And so Jesus puts God forth well, let me, let, me, let me finish reading verse 23. He says, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Jesus has put the Father forth as the ultimate problem solver, and that these men who are going to have a great number of problems laid before them in the, in the days to come, as the church takes off, They are to know firmly and surely in their hearts that God is the great remover of mountains. That the Father is the great solver of, solver, solver of, resolver of any problem. They must know in their burdens, in their trials, in their needs, these disciples must not doubt. They're, he's calling them not to waver back and forth. Is God going to take care of me? No. Is he not going to take care of me? Is he going to take care of me? Is he going to let me fall on my face? Is he going to take care of me? Is he going to not hear my prayers? Don't doubt God. And James says virtually the same thing in James 1, 6 to 8. He says, if anyone asks of God, he must ask in faith without any doubting. Why? For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will will receive anything for the Lord because he is a double-minded man, literally a double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. And the idea is that is that this the, the man who does that, the man who asks but he doubts, he has two minds in his heart. And one mind is saying, God will take care of you. The other mind, the other voice, kind of like the, the, the angel and the devil uh, in the old cartoons. One is saying, God will take care of you. You can trust him. The other is saying, oh, God's not listening. God's not powerful. God can't save. God's not going to take care of you. James says, don't do that. Don't doubt God. So first, powerful prayer comes by having faith in God. Second, powerful prayer comes without doubting God. Now, here, here come, here's a very practical aspect, which maybe, we over, maybe we've overlooked if we've read this before. Verse 24, powerful prayer asks of God. It's, that's practical. Powerful prayer actually asks of God. Now, verse 24 is, is actually a, a reinforcement. It's kind of a repetition of verse 23 which is good because teachers need to repeat themselves frequently in order to get things across. 
And Jesus needed to repeat himself here because these men needed to get this lesson, the importance of powerful prayer, drilled into their heads because, one, they need to pray. In the days to come, they will certainly need to pray. And two, they need to be assured. They need to have no doubt that when they take their burdens, when they take the problems of the church, the problems of shepherding these people, the problems of evangelizing the lost, the problems of many of them, uh, their lives being on the line, being in prison, lost at sea, starving, left out in the cold at night, abandoned, isolated, discouraged, Betrayed even. They need to know that God will hear their prayers. Isn't that good for us too? We need to pray and we need to be assured that God hears our prayers if they are indeed asked in faith. So have faith, don't doubt, and then actually go ahead and ask. Like actually do it. James 4.2, you have not because you what not? Yeah. So ask. Now, there are some differences. I said verse 24 is, kind of, is a repetition. It's a parallel of verse 23, but there are some differences. Notice that Jesus says, all things for which you pray and ask. All things. All things? Like, really? I mean, just open menu, whatever I want, all things sounds kind of cool children that always behave spouses that always behave don't look at your spouse right now the perfect job perfect health the body that doesn't metabolize carbohydrates amen a ferrari winning the lottery long life no troubles the perfect boss I mean, is, is this really open-ended? Can we really pray for all things? Well, I, I referenced uh, James 4.2 a second ago, James 4.3. You ask and do not receive. Anyone know how that goes? Be- yes, good job. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, God has never said he's going to be our, cos- our great cosmic butler. He's not going to be a genie to, to answer and cater to our every whim. Rather, Scripture portrays him as a good father who knows your needs and who will abundantly provide for what you need. Not what you want, but what you need. John sixteen twenty three in the upper room, which will be the next night, Jesus said to them, If you ask my father for anything in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. And and this shows the context in what he's talking about. Because just a couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that James and John asked Jesus for something, remember? And he he didn't concede. He didn't give in to their request. Why? Was he asking? Were they asking for exaltation? Were they asking to sit on his right and on his left in his name? Were they asking for his sake? Were they asking so that he would be glorified? So that he would be honored? No, they were asking so that they could be honored. They were asking with wrong motives so that they could spend it on their pleasures. They wanted the glory. 
in my name is not some formula that you or I tack on to our vain and empty uh, wishes and desires. It means asking for something so that it would be done for the sake of the person whose name you are praying it in. Asking for something to be done in Jesus' name is asking for something to be done in your life so that Jesus can look good. So that your Lord, so that your Savior gets the honor and the glory. Not you, not me. That's what praying in His name means. And so, the things that they would be praying for wouldn't be Ferraris or whatever Italian donkey was out that year with a nice red coat. It's not praying for nice things. It's not praying for luxury and leisure. It's praying for things like your marriage being made strong. Things like praying so that you can be reconciled to your spouse. Praying that your children would be saved and that they would grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praying to see lost or, or uh, uh, loved ones who are lost, see them come to saving faith. Praying to see repentance in their life. Praying to see repentance in your life. Praying to see things happen so that when, you're, so that when it does happen and people ask you what happened, the only thing you can say, the only appropriate thing you can say is God was good to me. Those are the things that honors God. Those are the things that you pray in his name. Powerful prayer asks of God. It needs to be for the right motive, but it actually takes the initiative and asks of God. So powerful prayer comes by having faith, by believing without doubting, by actually asking with the right motive. And fourth, Powerful prayer comes by forgiving others. Powerful prayer comes by forgiving others. This is, comes from a heart that readily, easily, without restraint, forgives. He says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying stand would be that was the common stance of prayer in the old world you you know and that makes sense if you're coming up to a sovereign to to let your petitions to let your requests to 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 let your needs be known and you're pleading with him that he would intervene on your behalf you're not going to sit crisscross applesauce right in front of him you're going to stand in his presence while he sits on his throne that's that's a position of uh, showing honor showing respect showing reverence so when you stand before the Lord and you're praying, forgive. Forgive. Forgive means to let go. It means to dismiss a, a person or an object. We commonly use this to, uh, to mean to, for, to, to release someone from a legal or a moral obligation if a debt is owed. If, if there's if there's some sense in which we are holding something against someone, and you're and the the idea is, is you owe me. You owe me. Forgiveness is to release them. To let it go. It's in light of of whatever the infraction is, whatever the infraction is. 
whatever the debt is, whatever it is that is causing us to look at someone else in the eye and say, you owe this to me, you ought to do this, it's to say, I don't hold this charge against you any longer. You are free to go. You are forgiven. You are pardoned. It is dismissed. Jesus says, if you have anything against only the people you like, go ahead and forgive them. Maybe your coworkers too, because you know you want to have peace in the workplace, and 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 family members too, and your spouse. You need to forgive them. But 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 the guy down the street, no, you don't need to. What does he say? If you have anything against anyone, I mean, how how much more inclusive can you get? Anything. Against, I mean, that, that, that levels the playing field, doesn't it? Anything against anyone, forgive them. Whatever it is, forgive them. You dismiss that charge. So whatever grievances you have against your child, your spouse, your coworker, your parents, whatever, your politicians, forgive them. You don't wait for repentance on their end. You don't wait to see whether they are deserving of your forgiveness you go ahead, you take the initiative, you forgive them. And you take that list of charges that you have in your heart and your mind against that person and you throw it into the fire. You know what, you know what we normally do? You know what, what's more natural for us to do is to take that, that, that list of grievances, that list of charges that, that we have against one another, and we say, I forgive you, and I fold it up and I go put it in a safety deposit box. Why? Because I want to pull that out later and I want to use it against you at the appropriate, at the strategic time. Don't do that. You throw it in the fire and don't dive into the fire after, afterwards to get it. You let it go. I'm trying so hard not to, not to go into that song. Let it go. Dismiss it. I said I'm not going there. Jesus says, forgive them. Why? Why should we forgive others there's a purpose clause in the verse 25 forgive if you have anything against anyone so that so that answers the why here's the why so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions i'm going to go ahead and read verse 26 uh, in all likelihood, this is not original to Mark, but uh, Mark came, I believe Mark came after Matthew. Ma- Mark 26 is identical. It looks like it's a quotation from Matthew uh, 6.15 uh, in the Beatitudes. So what likely happened is, is some scribe uh, who's writing, who's making a copy, you know, their, their buddy has Mark and they want their own copy of Mark. So he's, he's copying Mark and he comes to this part and he remembers his mind jumps to, to Matthew 6.15 and continues where Mark, uh, where Mark 20, 11.25 stopped. And so this isn't, con- this isn't um, uh, contrasting. This is not saying anything the Bible doesn't say. It's just merely saying something that the Bible says somewhere else. So there's textual variance 101 for you right there. But he says... If, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that we can have faith? You and I could have faith and believe in God and not doubt his goodness and power to save me. And we can actually practically pray to God only to have all of that made null and void and crumpled up and thrown into the trash can because we didn't forgive a fella. Could be, yeah. That's what it says. And what's clear from the teaching of Jesus is that forgiving others and being forgiven go hand in hand. They go together. The most vivid illustration of this of forgiveness is in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And I don't have time to read the whole thing, but I, let me summarize it for you. There's a slave who owes an insurmountable debt to the king and in turn is owed a much more meager, much more reasonable debt by a fellow slave. And the one who has the great debt, this insurmountable debt, this debt that, I mean, Bill Gates could not even pay off this debt, is a massive debt. The king, to the surprise of everybody, forgives him his debt and releases, it dis- dismisses him and pardons him and lets him go. And then he walks out and he, goes, he finds his fellow slave who owes him a hundred bucks. You know, a much more reasonable uh, uh, debt. And the, 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 the other slave begs for forgiveness, and the guy says, no, he, he, he drags him into prison so that he can get what is owed to him, so that he can get his due. And the king gets wind of this. The slave is brought before him, and he says, and, and this is the indictment, shouldn't you have shown mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I showed mercy to you. Being forgiven and, sh- and giving forgiveness go hand in hand. The believer and the disciple and the guy who's following Jesus, who's being made like him, ought to act like him. True? And if Jesus has forgiven us, though one or two acts of disobedience isn't going to mean that we aren't saved, I have to ask myself, and it's a good question to ask ourselves, when you look at a person, whether it's yourself in the mirror or somebody else, the longer you look, you look at, the tra- at the pattern of his life, you look at the trajectory of his life, the more in forgiveness you see, the more bitterness you see, the more you see a person clenching on to what they are owed the more that that is what defines and characterizes a person, the more you've got to wonder if he's really a disciple of Christ, if if he really has the spirit in his heart, and if he is being conformed into the likeness of Christ. Because that certainly ain't Christ-like. Those who are forgiven will forgive because that is what Jesus did for them. And they are being made by the power of the Holy Spirit. They are being made to be like their savior being forgiven and forgiving others goes hand in hand paul writes in ephesians 4:32 be kind to one another here's my favorite greek word being tender hearted you splochnidzo just mm, rolls off the tongue forgiving and here here is the natural uh, expression of being tender hearted for giving each other on what basis why just as god in christ also has forgiven you being forgiven and give, giving forgiveness go hand in hand in a, in a in a minute or two 
or five or ten, we're going to sing before the throne of God above. Whenever I finish, whenever I feel like finishing, we're going to sing before the throne of God above. And when you, when you sing these words, I have a strong and perfect plea of one, uh, because of one who lives and pleads for me. In that song, when you are rejoicing and you are celebrating over the fact that you have a confident expectancy of peace and mercy because of the great mediator who is intervening for you and on your behalf, you, are, you and I are one who is pleading for mercy and we are expecting mercy. How can we turn around in the same breath, deny forgiveness, deny mercy to somebody who's, who is likewise pleading for forgiveness from us? Being forgiven and giving forgiveness go hand in hand. And that spirit of lowliness isn't this what Jesus has been trying to pull out in these men for so long? I think each of these four points, faith, not doubting, taking the initiative and actually asking and forgiving, these are all categorical areas of weakness in their, in their spiritual makeup. They haven't been men of faith. They, they have been plagued with, with a lingering, pervading doubt. They, they don't ask. They don't they, they aren't led to prayer. And, and sadly, beloved, right up until the upper room, they will still be clamoring. They will still be bickering with each other. They will be, still be so committed to their own exaltation that they will be arguing with each other who's the bestest, even up to the very end. And that tells me they didn't have a gracious, forgiving attitude. So question for you church do you want the power and provision of heaven to work in your life in your circumstances in your trials in your hardships do you want the power and provision of god to be at work in your family in your spouse in your children in your students in your grandchildren on your three vehicles that are all out of commission at the same time in your newborn's life in bringing about a spouse at the right time do you want the power and the provision of heaven to be at work in your lives yes or no do you want god to show mercy and grace to you pray pray believing pray knowing that he is a faithful God. Pray without doubting. Pray and actually ask God for the things that he has promised to do for you in his word. Pray for the strength that he promised you. Read 1 Peter 5, uh, 8 to 10, I think. Pray for strength. He's promised you strength. Pray for wisdom. James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. Pray for wisdom. Pray for guidance. Pray for mercy. Pray for grace. He, scripture says abundantly, He is the God of all grace. And lest any of your prayers be hindered. What was the last one? What's the last thing? If, if you don't want your prayers hindered, what do you need to do to one another? Forgive. Good. Paying attention. I can sit down now. Let's pray.
Lord, help us to be a praying church. You have made it abundantly clear to, to the 12 who in turn uh, made it abundantly clear to the church who has passed it down to us that you are a God who provides. And you could just snap your fingers, as it were, and give us everything we need for all time like some great cosmic vending machine. But you have instead chosen to use the means of prayer so that our joy would be made full as we see from firsthand experience that you do hear our prayers, that you do answer our prayers, and that you do provide for our needs, and you, you sustain us through our trials and hardships. Make us a praying people, Lord. Make us a praying people who believe, who trust in you, who ask, and who readily show grace to one another, just as you have shown grace to us. Well, as we come to a close, let's stand and sing before the throne of God above.
this not be an empty reminder though would we meditate on this for a long time Lord this is something we all need and if we don't think we need it we need it more Lord would we be praying for our family and our friends for our neighbors for our loved ones for the people around us God for your will to be done we thank you so much for this message today in your name we pray amen